How y'all doing there? Sure like to thank y'all for stopping by to have a cigar with Uncle Maduro. Y'all see I changed the name. It used to be removing the illusion. Now it's cigar with Uncle Maduro. Man, look at here. Now before we get started, y'all always know I like to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm going back into my past. I'm going back into 2007 when I was up there in Delaware. And I used to go to the Mahogany Room downtown uh, Philly. Man, they had a nice cigar spot. It was upstairs, one of them old school cigar spots. But I'm going back to my roots on this one. Tonight, we're going to talk about Ashton Cigar and particularly this Ashton H. Maduro. Mm, mm, mm. <coughs> now, y'all know I like that. Ashton H. Maduro. But back then, I wasn't smoking the Maduro. Back then, I think I was smoking the Churchill or something like that. But you know what? Let me tell y'all about this Ashton Age Maduro before I go off on one of my little stories there. Now, tell what these people say first, then I'm going to give y'all my little opinion, all right? Now, this Ashton Age Maduro is crafted with a perfectly aged blend of Dominican long leaf fillers. The Ashton Age Maduro also features a Dominican binder to ensure consistency. Then this beauty is wrapped in a dark, oily, slowly fermented Maduro Connecticut broadleaf. One of the rarest of this kind. The sleek wrapper looks just as savory as it tastes. When lit, the medium body smoke combine notes of natural sweetness and subtle nutty undertones that captivate the palate with rich, delicious flavors. This beauty is hand-rolled at the Chateau de la Futo in the Dominican Republic to ensure authenticity. If you are a Maduro lover like I am, of course, try the Ashton Age Maduro for unwavering smoking experience. Relish in this premium cigar before it's too late. Now, let me tell y'all something here. Now, I'm not usually a big fan of Connecticut broad leaves, but this here smoke here, this is a really good stick. And we got a friend of ours that come down to Roz. He, he's, a, he's a rep for Ashton Cigars. Young man by the name of Jeremy. Man, he's a good fella. Particularly, he's a good fella because he's a University of Michigan fan. <laughs> and he's an Ohio State fan. <laughs> Y'all know what I mean? But let me tell you something. This Ashton here, I like it. Now, like I say, I can't taste all this nutty, this nutty subtile undertones and all that kind of stuff like that. But this is a nice, smooth stick. Now, you got to watch these Ashton cigars, too. Because they're so good, the price points are a little higher than your average cigar. Now, this thing here is probably going to run you probably about, hmm... Probably about, I mean, how much these folks is today? Uh, probably about a stick is probably going to cost you probably about $17, $18 a stick. See, Ashton don't make it mess around. Ashton is a traditional cigar, and let me tell you something. They know how to make a cigar. Now, y'all know I've been smoking these Illusiana lately. So I want to go back to my roots on this one here. Now, like I said, back in the day, I wasn't smoking the Ashton Age Maduro. I was smoking a Churchill. And let me tell you something, my head used to get banged up with them things. But back then, I ain't know nothing about no cigars, you know, no mild, medium, and full body. I just used to go in there and get me one of them, tell lady, give me an Ashton, because that's all I knew. Give me an Ashton cigar. And she bring me out one of them $17 cigars, and I smoke half that thing. I get sick as a dog. Back then, I was drinking Coca-Cola, you know, with, with my little cigar, and that sugar wasn't a good combination with that cigar, especially a full-body cigar. Knock me up. I remember you used to have to, have to walk down the street before I get in my car and drive back to Delaware. You used to have to take me a walk to try to cool out a little bit. See, back then, I didn't know anything about no chocolate or even some candy, you know, to kind of balance you back out. But see, I'm ready for it now. And this Ashton Age Maduro, let me tell y'all something. It's a little pricey, you know, than, 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 uh, than normal sticks that I usually buy. But sometimes a special occasion calls for a special cigar. And y'all ever get a chance, man, pick up this Ashton Age Maduro. This is a really good stick, y'all. All right. Now, look here. Tonight, the lit talk we're going to talk about now, we're going to take a look at economic development subsidies and how they work, or should I say, who they benefit. Because I've been thinking about this little thing here lately, because now what's going on now, you got these companies, see, the manufacturer... And the manufacturing has gone more global now. Like I tell folks, this internet opened a whole lot of things up. And these Asian companies are running around, and, and these Asian companies are doing a really good job running around these different countries, getting all these incentives and, and being subsidized to develop. I mean, they just, 
they, I'm just gonna put it mighty plainly. These Asian, these Asian developers and millionaires and billionaires and these uh, corp, Asian corporations, they run in circles around the American businessmen, especially the American, the uh, the the uh, you know, the mayors and the governors of these little cities and these little townships where they can go in and get these subsidies and these, these incentives. Now, I was thinking about this little one little story here that really sparked my mind about development subsidies, you know, and how much we offer, you know, not we, but our elected governors and mayors of our little cities and our little towns and our state, how much they offer these companies to come in and set up a manufacturer base. You see what I'm saying? And it just didn't make any sense to me when I'm listening to this thing because they putting up every citizen in debt to these companies that only going to hire only a few folks and probably the way technology changes, only going to be there for a little certain time. But before I get the one in my mouth, we're going to take a look at what these folks say about economic development and subsidies and how they work, or should I say who they benefit. We're going to take a look at this. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk to y'all about this thing here because this thing just don't make any sense to me. You know, how we giving up all this money to these business corporations to come in to set up shop. When that money can be better used doing something else. But I'm not going to get off of my little tamer. I'm going to share what these people say. And then we're going to talk about this thing here, okay? All right. So while y'all doing that, I'm going to get back with my Ashton Maduro. All right. Get that with y'all on the flip side now. All right. Let's take a look at economic development subsidies and how they work. Or, should I say who do they really benefit? U.S. President Donald Trump participates in a groundbreaking ceremony for a Foxconn facility at the Wiscon Valley Science and Technology Park in Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin, on June 28, 2018. Politicians, it seems, always crave credit for the creation of new jobs in their communities, but in a free market economy, governments play only a partial role when it comes to determining where businesses locate and who they hire. Still, in today's headline-focused media culture, short-term political optics often outweigh reality, and elected officials spend considerable time and effort to spur economic development especially at the state and local levels. In many places, the economic development game plan consists of offering incentives to a select number of firms based on a narrow set of criteria, such as industry type or employment levels, instead of ensuring robust investment in education, workforce training, infrastructure, and other essential public goods. While state and local tax incentives for small to mid-size companies have tripled since 1990, Efforts have increasingly shifted toward moonshot strategies massive proposals aimed at luring extremely large corporations that hold the promise of significant jobs and investment, but which often come at an extremely high per job cost. Examples of the strategy abound, including semiconductor manufacturer Global Foundries in New York, the Boeing Corporation in Washington and South Carolina, foreign automakers in southern states, and, more recently, the electronics manufacturer Foxconn Technology Group in Wisconsin as well as Amazon in its yet-to-be-determined second headquarters, HQ2, location. Unfortunately, elected officials, fixated on short-term political interests, promoted the positives of these incentives jobs and economic growth while minimizing or ignoring the downside's financial and opportunity costs. Their decision to do so is completely rational. The announcement of a deal between a government and a company typically includes the promise of jobs retained or created and millions of dollars in new investment. These benefits are a politician's dream because they create immediate positive headlines. In fact, one public finance expert calls it the ribbon-cutting syndrome. Meanwhile, any negatives, such as companies failing to deliver on their promises, come to light much later and often receive less attention. And in some cases, companies even started construction on a new facility while still pursuing incentives to locate there. A recent case in point, then-presidential candidate Donald Trump initially criticized United Technologies Corporation for its announced plan to move one of its carrier manufacturing facilities from Indiana to Mexico, insisting that they have to pay a consequence. Following Trump's election, the consequence ended up being a deal negotiated by then-Indiana government and Vice President-elect Mike Pence on behalf of the President-elect giving United Technologies $7 million in state tax breaks over the course of a decade. In return, the company would only move about two-thirds of the 2,100 jobs originally planned and keep the plant open. The deal garnered positive headlines for the incoming administration, such as Carrier to keep about 1,000 U.S. factory jobs in deal with Trump. Ironically, the deal hammered out to keep the Carrier plant in Indiana was quite the change from what Trump said on the campaign trail, where he railed against corporate giveaways. During a visit to Wilkes Bars, he said, here's a low-interest loan if you stay in Pennsylvania. Here's a zero-interest loan. You don't have to pay. 
here's a tax abatement of any kind you want. We'll help your employees. It doesn't work, folks. That's not what they need. They have money. Trump was not wrong when he said that the strategy doesn't work. In May 2017, despite the tax breaks, Carrier's Indianapolis plant notified the state of Indiana of its intention to lay off 630 employees during the second half of the year. In order to receive a total of $5 million in job retention tax credits, $1 million in training tax credits, and $1 million in capital investment tax credits, Carrier must keep at least 1,069 full-time employees, provide training for at least 900 of them, and make a minimum of $16 million in investments for up to 10 years. Former employees argue that hundreds of the jobs that remain are administrative and engineering office positions that were never going to be relocated. Carrier CEO also indicated that the investments would go toward automation technology that would further reduce the number of jobs. Thrust into the 2016 campaign as an issue emblematic of offshoring quality jobs, Carrier received an inordinate amount of attention and the president-elect received political benefits, but the deal did not turn out to be in the best interest of workers. Most other economic development incentive deals happen with far less scrutiny, abetted by underappreciation of their true costs and overall impacts. Underlying the commonly held misperception of the utility and necessity of incentives are implicit and explicit beliefs that incentives are consequential to firms' location decisions, that benefits always outweigh costs that incentives are the best economic development strategy, and that competition amongst locales is inherently good. Survey respondents have indicated that they view governors who secured private investments with incentives more favorably than governors who secured private investments without them. This issue brief confronts several overlapping misunderstandings, using examples in order to show the limits of incentives in essence, providing a reality check. Reality 1, economic development incentives often are not crucial to where firms locate. Firms looking to locate or relocate often overemphasize the impact that subsidies have on their decisions. They have good reason to do this since exaggerating the impact might encourage a state or local government to offer a more robust incentives package. The reality is businesses place far more weight on other considerations. For example, in its request for proposal for HQ2, Amazon mentions incentives as part of key preferences and decision drivers. However, it also emphasizes real estate and siting availability, a talented workforce and education pipeline, sufficient infrastructure for workers commuting as well as for national and international travelers, and a community with a high quality of life. When ruling out Detroit, the Amazon executive leading the search blamed the absence of a regional transportation network and an insufficient number of workers prepared to take the influx of jobs not its insufficient tax breaks. Minneapolis-St. Paul heard similar concerns about hiring and recruitment. It is no coincidence that places that possess these desirable characteristics, such as the Washington metro area, New York, Boston, and Los Angeles, are among the finalists for a top-tier technology conglomerate. In 2015, ConAgra Foods moved its headquarters from Omaha to Chicago. Nebraska offered $28.5 million in incentives, which was more than twice Illinois' $13 million offer. In explaining the move, ConAgra CEO Sean Connolly did not mention the role of incentives but instead pointed to strategic needs of the business and the fact that its new downtown location would put it at the heart of one of the world's business capitals. The failure to do strategic economic development has subjected nearly every community and state to a zero-sum game of providing company-specific incentives in seemingly haphazard ways. Distribution and logistics warehouses frequently receive economic development subsidies. The accountability nonprofit Good Jobs first tracks the subsidy packages that Amazon has received for its fulfillment and data centers, which now total nearly $1.4 billion nationally. Supply chain facilities have limited geographic flexibility. In other words, if a company needs a regional distribution center to serve the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area, one would expect the distribution center to locate in the metro area. However, the company could consider dozens of location options in a variety of cities within the region, making it possible to extract incentives out of local governments and choose a high bidder. The amount businesses pay in state and local taxes is far less than what they typically imply. Two studies estimate that businesses' state and local taxes account for less than 2% of the total costs of doing business, on average, nationally. Other costs, such as wages and benefits, are far more substantial, so it makes sense that the impact of reducing a specific business's tax burden has only modest effects on location decisions. The use of property tax incentives in Texas provides compelling evidence based on dozens of examples that locational decisions are not highly correlated with economic subsidies. A unique Texas law grants school districts substantial power to subsidize a business's taxes on new property. Because the state has no income tax, in 2015, property taxes comprised 42% of Texas state and local revenues, 
far exceeding the national average of 31.1%. That year, nearly 54% of the state's property taxes were levied by school districts, so reducing school funding property taxes for businesses has become a ubiquitous tool for economic development. Under the Texas Economic Development Act, also known as Chapter 313 of the state's tax code, school districts have a unique role that allows them to determine the outcome of a business's application to the state controller for incentives, permitting local governments to reduce businesses' property tax liabilities in exchange for building or expanding property and creating jobs. Companies can entice school districts to approve applications by agreeing to supplemental payments essentially payments in lieu of tax, PILTs or pilots, to the district out of the business's tax benefits. Unlike property taxes, supplemental payments are not part of state school aid formulas, making them, in effect, fiscal transfers from the state government to the company, meaning that the school districts have little incentive to exercise caution in their usage. Proponents believe that Chapter 313 is a critical tool for economic development, echoing a common argument, foregone taxes are worth it because they create new revenues that the government never would have collected without subsidies. Since Chapter 313 established a standardized process for receiving this incentive, Nathan Jensen, a University of Texas at Austin professor, analyzed businesses' applications for school property tax relief. His findings suggest that just 15% of participating firms needed the incentives in order to make an investment in Texas. Furthermore, many of the other firms were uncharacteristically open that incentives were not a necessity. The author cites instances in which companies applied for incentives after completing a project and asserts that both school districts and the controller's office were aware of the program's widespread ineffectiveness. Reality 2, benefits from incentive deals may not live up to the promises. Decades of stagnant wages and the disappearance of good jobs have put tremendous pressure on millions of working families across the country. Voters frequently cite the economy as their top election issue, so elected officials look for ways to be responsive to those concerns. Creating good-paying jobs is a difficult task, so it is enticing to simply trade away some tax revenue in exchange for the addition or preservation of jobs whether it be 10 or 1,000 jobs. Incentives as a share of value added increased substantially in the late 1990s and early 2000s, primarily due to the increase of job creation tax credits. However, some local officials have begun resisting the temptation. For example, Mayor Sam Licardo of San Jose, California, says that subsidies are a bad deal for city taxpayers. The administration of the nation's 10th largest city would rather focus on the workforce, citing a statistic that only 5% of job growth in Santa Clara County which includes San Jose comes from move-in businesses. Similarly, in San Antonio, the nation's seventh-largest city, the mayor and county judge wrote to Amazon declining to participate in its HQ2 search, saying, blindly giving away the farm isn't our style. The academic literature tends to reinforce these mayor's approaches. Incentives, while better targeted than broad tax cuts, are not particularly cost-effective, and research questions what, if any, impact incentive programs have on overall economic activity. According to one study, on a per-job year-created basis, business tax incentives cost an average of $16,600 across more than 100 manufacturing-intensive high-population local labor markets. Neighborhood development, brownfield redevelopment, infrastructure investment, and customized job training strategies had substantially lower costs per job year, making them a far better use of resources. The author of the study, labor economist Timothy J. Bardick, wrote, I find no evidence that job growth in these areas is significantly spurred by cutting business taxes or increasing business tax incentives. Other findings reach a similar conclusion. One evaluation of the Kansas City region discovered that there was no statistically significant difference in new job creation between companies that received incentives from the Promoting Employment Across Kansas, Peak, initiative and those that did not. With rapidly increasing demands for cloud computing and online storage, many large tech corporations are establishing data centers throughout the country and state and local governments are willing to pay them to do so. Data centers are essentially racks of servers that require little more than land, tons of cheap energy, and just a few workers. Still, Apple received $213 million for a 50-employee data center in Iowa, Facebook will receive $150 million for a Utah data center with fewer than 50 employees, and Google has taken advantage of property tax exemptions for its facilities in Oklahoma. The economic development commitments that state and local governments make to companies can last decades. Wisconsin has committed to giving refundable tax credits to Foxconn until 2033. The Michigan Economic Growth Authority's MEGA tax credits have a remaining liability of $7 billion lasting until 2030. As of 2015, 95% of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation's outstanding tax credits targeted maintaining current jobs at credit-receiving companies.
incentives are frequently front-loaded, which can add considerable risk for governments. It is unlikely that the involved elected officials will stay in office for the entirety of the commitments they made. Moreover, it is uncertain that the company will still be in business. The average S&P 500 company stays in business fewer than 20 years, and the typical company has a lifespan of 10 years, regardless of sector. Even with due diligence, the idea that a government may use taxpayer dollars to subsidize a company that may not exist by the time its expected incentives run out much less by when the promised benefits are realized should give taxpayers serious concerns. This was exactly the case involving a Pennsylvania plan to build Volkswagen Rabbits in 1978. After winning a national competition by promising tens of millions of dollars in state incentives, Pennsylvania saw Volkswagen close its factory less than a decade later following insufficient U.S. demand for the car. Investments in infrastructure or human capital do not leave with the company. Similarly, in January 2018, consumer product company Kimberly Clark announced plans to close two manufacturing facilities in Wisconsin. The announcement was part of Kimberly Clark's 2018 global restructuring program, which aims to cease production at 10 manufacturing facilities, exit low margin markets, and lay off up to 5,500 workers in order to save several billion dollars. Confronting the loss of 600 jobs in their state, Governor Scott Walker, R., and some Wisconsin state legislators offered the company the same level of incentives as Foxconn, including subsidizing wages by 17% and capital improvements by 15%. The estimated per job per year subsidy is $15,000 to $19,000, an amount that is far more expensive than $2,500 per job per year the average incentive amount for other deals. The enabling legislation passed the state assembly but never received a vote in the state senate. Perhaps there has been a realization that after one large company receives a deal, a state legislator or city council member will be forced to make decisions about where to draw the line for others. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon told investors that he would work to get the winning location of the HQ2 contest in order to give his company the same benefits as Amazon.52 This puts elected officials in the position of determining whether J.P. Morgan Chase and other companies should receive subsidies on PAR with Amazon. When a company relocates after receiving subsidies, it is difficult sometimes impossible, for a government to claw back those incentives. Investments in infrastructure or human capital do not leave with the company. These public goods stay with places and workers for the long term, enabling other companies to make use of them in their business models. Incentives are subject to the law of the hammer, that is to say, if the only tool one has is a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail. Even though they have other options for economic development, state and local governments want to bring jobs and investment to their communities and see company-specific incentives as an easy and conventional solution. However, if used incorrectly, much like a hammer, these types of subsidies run the risk of long-term damage. Reality 3, subsidies may result in diminished public services. Advocates often fail to give the complete context around a potential deal and exclude public costs, potential displacement of existing firms, and opportunity costs of using resources in other productive ways. Granted, some economic development deals undoubtedly do have measurable positive benefits in terms of jobs and increased investment. Proponents commonly frame a deal in terms of benefits that would not or could not happen in its absence. In some ways, it is a trickle-down strategy at the local level financial incentives targeted toward a single company with the promise that the community and its residents will benefit from the job creation and investment that follow. Recently, Governor Larry Hogan, RMD, defended Maryland's incentives legislation for Amazon's HQ2 promoting extraordinary innovation in Maryland's economy, Prime, Act of 2018 saying, we're actually letting the corporation keep some of its future revenues that we're not getting now in taxes if they create all these jobs. However, the more relevant consideration is, what are the costs of the agreement relative to the gains? Any financial incentives will be derived from government revenues and, ultimately, from taxpayers. Since state and local governments must balance their budgets, Financing a new deal, at least in the short term, must take the form of increased taxes on others, reduced spending on other priorities, or a combination of the two. Despite a strengthening national economy, states have not been improving their fiscal stability. In 2017, 21 states had less in their reserves frequently referred to as a rainy day fund compared with 2008. Since 2010, more states have seen a downgrade in their bond rating than have seen an upgrade. Point 54 binding commitments to subsidize jobs and capital investments may be feasible now, but in the event of an economic downturn, states will have less revenue, potentially forcing legislators to cut other spending priorities in order to meet contractual obligations to companies. Proponents often cite studies, prepared by hired economic consulting firms, 
which estimate additional economic activity and new jobs that would occur solely because of a new project. In the case of Amazon HQ2 in Maryland's Montgomery County, just outside of Washington, D.C., one such study predicted that the project would have an economic impact of $17 billion annually while supporting more than 100,000 jobs and hundreds of millions in state and county tax revenues. Montgomery County, one of the wealthiest, densest, and most populous counties in the nation, already faces a fiscal year 2018 budget shortfall of $120 million despite a strong national and local economy. If Amazon put HQ2 in Maryland, it would mean at least 50,000 additional workers in Montgomery County an increase of 10% and an additional 300,000 to 1 million residents in the region over the next decade or so. Many of those workers and their families would choose to reside near the new headquarters, and tens of thousands of additional people would commute to and from the county daily. This would expand the tax base, leading to new revenues, but also result in new social costs, including pressures on the school system, affordable housing, and transportation networks. Mark Ilrich, the Democratic nominee for Montgomery County Executive, supports Maryland's $8.5 billion Amazon plan but admits that schools is the thing where we're going to need help. If public spending fails to match the needs of a growing population, there is substantial risk of deteriorating essential public services that would have negative impacts on all new and existing county residents, but especially on low-income households that are disproportionately in communities of color. Examples highlighting such a scenario are evident elsewhere. Wisconsin's Legislative Fiscal Bureau, for instance, projects that the state will have to divert up to $90 million of its funding for local road work to pay for construction related to Foxkin. Amazon's 50,000 projected employees would make up less than 1.5% of the 3.4 million people in the current Washington metro area labor force. Furthermore, there is no information about how many HQ2 employees would be existing metro area residents. An employer such as Amazon is looking for highly qualified employees with specific skills. Even if some potential employees are local, companies may look to hire from elsewhere, often encouraged by financial incentives for non-local employees. For example, Washington's proposal for Amazon HQ2 offers new hiring credits of up to $10,000 per employee. If the employee is a new hire from outside of the district, Amazon is eligible for an additional subsidy of up to $5,000 against corporate franchise tax liabilities. When in-migrants take some of the jobs created as part of an incentive deal, it diminishes the per capita growth effects. Montgomery County and Washington are only two of 20 finalists for Amazon HQ2, but they are by no means unique in their characteristics. Other finalist locations, many of which are the most thriving metropolitan areas in the country, already struggle with rapid and uneven growth, furthering inequality and income segregation. These growing cities are already constrained by an inability to raise sufficient revenues to provide public services. It is not clear how Amazon, or any company receiving economic development subsidies, would improve their fiscal situations. Moreover, there also appears to be a connection between tax incentives and inequality. Out of a sample of the largest U.S. cities and counties, the magazine Governing found that the 100 places with the highest inequality, measured by the Gini Index, had the highest median tax abatement per capita. The analysis did not conclude that incentives worsen inequality, but results suggest that incentives frequently go to desirable employers such as those with name recognition or those in high-paying sectors. Based on data between 2008 and 2014, Good Jobs first found that large companies with at least 100 employees got 80 to 96% of the incentive dollars, but these firms account for less than two-thirds of private sector employment. The inequality is apparent in Sparks, Nevada. Following the arrival of Tesla's battery factory in 2014, property values and rents have boomed, pushing many people whose fortunes fall outside of the margins of Tesla's impact toward housing insecurity. The city has been unable to assist its residents. Its revenue growth has barely kept up with inflation, even as population growth tests the limits of its existing resources. Every dollar that goes to subsidizing an incentive-seeking company is a dollar that cannot be used to mitigate the costs of its impacts. Seattle, home to Amazon since the company's beginning, provides a lesson in how a city adapts to an influx of workers with high-paying jobs. The city has struggled to confront the effects of its growth. To underscore the city's challenge, Seattle planned on taxing larger employers in order to address the lack of affordable housing and the rise in homelessness, which has increased 44% between 2015 and 2017. Under the city's employee hours tax, businesses with annual gross revenues of $20 million or more would pay an annual tax of 14 cents per Seattle-based employee per hour, up to $275 a year. After Seattle passed its large employer tax, the local business community including Amazon and Starbucks organized an effort to put a repeal initiative on the ballot during this November's election. 
Instead of permitting a months-long campaign, Seattle's council voted to repeal the tax, bringing the city back to square one on dealing with its housing issues. Silicon Valley cities have begun to discuss implementing their own employee headcount taxes targeted at the largest tech companies. Lenny Siegel, mayor of Mountain View, California home to Google cites the disparity between growth of jobs and lack of public improvements, saying, these are all job-rich cities, where employment has been growing rapidly, and housing and transportation have not. No matter the location or the firm, there is an inescapable dichotomy, every dollar that goes to subsidizing an incentive-seeking company is a dollar that cannot be used to mitigate the costs of its impacts. The source of the funding matters immensely. One model predicts that if a state gives away 1% of its personal income by cutting education spending, per capita income statewide would decrease 4.4%. Urbanist Richard Florida succinctly describes the trade-off between incentives and public services, they say publicly we want a sustainable community, a community with transit and affordable housing. How do you get that community if you don't pay taxes? Reality 4, governments competing for businesses by providing incentives is often a zero-sum game. Competition is often considered a virtue in political economics. For businesses, it drives innovation and creates efficiencies, allowing more to be produced at a lower cost. For non-federal governments, it forces policymakers to make decisions in order to generate the amount of revenue necessary to provide an optimal level of public services desired by the typical resident. This is the basis of the tie-bout model, which hypothesizes that people vote with their feet, deciding where to live in part based on their desire for public services and their willingness to pay for them. Firms make similar decisions, valuing things such as infrastructure, workforce, and natural resources, based on industries and business models. If state or local governments want to be attractive to certain types of businesses, such as tech companies or small businesses, then they should set public policies to reflect those goals. Offering incentives deal by deal or passing legislation narrowly written for a single company in order to win a competition is bad tax policy. In one survey of economists, only 5% of respondents agreed that the country as a whole benefits when cities or states compete with each other by giving tax incentives to firms to locate operations in their jurisdictions. If governments want to encourage certain kinds of commerce, they should not spend tax revenues on businesses that are the largest or most well-known. Instead, public officials should set broader policies that allow more businesses to benefit. The failure to do strategic economic development has subjected nearly every U.S. community and state to a zero-sum game of providing company-specific incentives in seemingly haphazard ways. Evan Mast of the W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research has studied the relationship between the geographic density of New York State's industrial development agencies and the level of competition. Mast's research shows that when there is a higher concentration of development agencies who can offer incentives in a given area, there are greater probabilities that a company receives incentives and that those incentives are larger. The belief that local governments must participate in this contest to catalyze job creation might well be misplaced. According to the Economic Policy Institute, the arrival of a new Amazon fulfillment center does not add to net private sector employment in a county. Between 2015 and 2017, Amazon opened at least 32 new fulfillment centers across the country. Point 80 It is plausible that local jobs just shifted from other sectors to warehousing, but wages for jobs in the sector did not increase. A worker previously employed in a different occupation, such as retail sales, may not necessarily see a wage boost by taking a warehouse job. In 2017, the median company-wide Amazon compensation was $28,446. Much of the information companies need to make location decisions is publicly available. With Amazon's list of preferences in hand, the finalists were mostly predictable. The key information the company lacked was the types and levels of incentives the cities and states were willing to provide as well as what real estate would be made available. Combined with its more than 330 active distribution facilities including fulfillment centers Amazon is gathering a uniquely robust level of information about these places for potential future locations. Reality 5, transparency and evaluation of incentives are minimal. Lastly, competitive deals for targeted incentives frequently happen through opaque processes, and governments may never plainly disclose total tax expenditures. States can set their own transparency measures, but there is considerable variation among states and even among programs in the same state. States carry out little, if any, evaluation of a tax expenditure's effectiveness at achieving its stated goals. Taxpayers would not accept a comparable lack of transparency on infrastructure or education spending from a public entity, they should have the same expectations when it comes to incentive agreements. There have been some efforts to improve information sharing requirements, but they have been inadequate. In 2015, the Governmental Accountability Standards Board, GASB, the accounting standard-setting organization for state and local governments, 
updated its rules so that governments must disclose tax abatements, including types and amounts. GASB does not, however, require disclosure of the quantity of agreements, the recipients' names, or estimates of future lost revenues. This closed-off and opaque process has been noteworthy as cities and counties have submitted their HQ2 bids to Amazon. Some governments such as the state of Rhode Island and the cities of Chicago and Charlotte, North Carolina refused to make public the information that they gave to Amazon in their proposals, even after open records requests. Montgomery County did comply with the request for its proposal but redacted every single line of the document. Officials fear they would put themselves at a competitive disadvantage with other governments if they were to reveal information that they consider akin to a trade secret. Some states and cities went as far as submitting their bids through outside organizations and chambers of commerce, exempting entire proposals from any public scrutiny. Some question whether the activities of regional economic development corporations are sufficient to satisfy the private benefit doctrine that prevents nonprofits from making decisions whose benefits to nonpublic entities are more than incidental. Of the 20 finalists, only Newark, New Jersey's $7 billion bid was fully disclosed. The rest withheld some or all information about what the city or state offered Amazon. Conclusion Economic development incentive deals frequently occur under the radar. Perhaps there will be a story in the local news when they involve an employer of community importance, but several recent high-profile relocation efforts have attracted immense amounts of national attention for a trivial amount of jobs in the context of the entire U.S. economy. However, 50,000 jobs or even 10,000 jobs would have noticeable impacts to the economy at the local and regional levels, and companies closely follow public sentiment. Media reporting has suggested that companies have adapted their strategies to appear cognizant of criticisms such as impacts on housing and narrow geographic benefits. Point 94 It seems that some companies have learned their lesson, but this does not change the fundamental reality that, far too often, economic development incentives are irrelevant to decision-making, fail to meet promised results, take away from existing or potential public services, lead to zero-sum competition among governments, and lack appropriate oversight. Until taxpayers demand accountability from elected officials who condone opaque and non-targeted deals, it is clear that we, as citizens, have not learned our lesson. Let's do a quick wrap-up on, economics of a targeted economic development subsidy might be a little redundant I want you guys to really understand this and its effects but you Joe, Sue Public is on the hook. Bottom of form. Many government officials consider targeted economic development subsidies key to economic development. In a recent survey of 110 mayors, for example, more than 8 out of 10 said targeted incentives are a good idea. In reality, economic development subsidies only help their corporate recipients and the politicians that supply them. Other companies, local residents, and the economy at large are harmed. In the economics of a targeted economic development subsidy, Matthew D. Mitchell, Michael D. Farron, Jeremy Horpedal, and Olivia Gonzalez provide a comprehensive analysis of the effects of economic development subsidies. Their estimates are based, in part, on the broad body of peer-reviewed academic research that finds that subsidies have little to no effect on where companies choose to invest. This means that the expected gross benefits of such subsidies should be substantially reduced. Furthermore, the authors incorporate the economic impact of the higher taxes needed to pay for the subsidies. They find that in the case of Wisconsin subsidies to Foxkin, the net effect of the subsidies will likely reduce future economic activity in Wisconsin by $370 million to $19.2 billion. Foxkin in Wisconsin, a case study of subsidy failure. In 2017, Wisconsin struck a deal with Taiwanese company Foxkin to manufacture large LCD screens within the state. Foxkin was supposed to make a $10 billion investment and create up to 13,000 jobs. In return, Wisconsin would do the following. Provide up to $3.6 billion to Foxkin in tax breaks and other subsidies. Exempt Foxkin from certain environmental regulations. Provide billions more in local government, utility, and infrastructure subsidies. Just two years after the deal, Foxkin is already reneging on its commitments and is building a much smaller $2 billion to $3 billion facility that will employ far fewer workers. This should be no surprise, given a recent Wisconsin state audit finding that, on average, subsidized firms create only 34% of the jobs they promise. The public does not win with economic development subsidies. Despite their promises, Subsidies are bad for the communities that provide them. Subsidies cause economic harm in the following ways. Subsidized companies are made less efficient. By allowing firms to shift costs onto taxpayers, subsidies allow firms to have higher production costs and to be less attentive to customer desires. Entrepreneurs are encouraged to seek favors. Subsidies encourage entrepreneurs to develop new ways to obtain political privilege rather than new ways to lower costs or enhance consumer welfare. 
non-subsidized companies are harmed. They are saddled with the tax cost of the subsidies given to their competitors. Taxpayers foot the bill. Scarce public resources, which could otherwise fund public services or tax cuts for all, are instead wasted encouraging business decisions that would likely be made anyway. These taxes, in turn, discourage other economic activity. Communities are put at risk. Subsidies can encourage over-specialization within a region, making communities more vulnerable to economic downturns. Key Takeaway Economic subsidies rarely sway where a company chooses to invest. Instead, companies prefer locations that offer productive workers, efficient business logistics, and access to region-specific resources. Subsidies turn companies' attention away from satisfying consumers, cost taxpayers billions of dollars, and generally don't create the economic development they claim. Subsidies may harm the long-term health of the companies that receive them. And from a broader perspective, they are almost certainly harmful for economic development. Microphone drop, here. Ha ha ha, what y'all think about that? Ain't that something? Y'all see how this thing here work? When y'all see all these big old factors coming to y'all little neighborhood, y'all little town, y'all see how this thing work? Do y'all understand what y'all's got to give up? These politicians sit up there and they just give all your land away, take your land. People get their houses taken away from them, eminent domain, all kind of stuff like that. Because they want to lure these corporations in. Because these senators, they mayor, they get that money right now. You know, if I'm a mayor, I'm a mayor of a, I'm a mayor of a little town, and I want to lure business in. You know, and I know that I'm I'm only I only got about maybe two or three years in office, something like that. So I'm gonna get mine. Like like song about Tupac, I gotta get mine. Tupac and MC Breed, I gotta get mine. You gotta get yours. I gotta get mine. I gotta get yours. And what these folks do is that they sell out the community. But see, it's kind of like a folk in a row for me to my thinking these days. Because the competition for jobs is a global competition now. See, I'm kind of torn, like they say, torn between two lovers. Do you give out these incentives and put the taxpayer in debt for years? For like momentary gratification, kind of like sex, momentary gratification. You give a woman $200, right? And the sex may last for like five, maybe 15 minutes. Then you got a little bit more stamina. And then it's over with for you. But yeah, she take your $200 and she go do some things with it that's going to last a whole lot longer than 15 minutes. But it's momentary gratification for you, right? But it's long lasting gratification for her because she got your money. And that's how these businesses is. You see what I'm saying? It's short-term gratification for the politician that gives out these uh, these incentives to put the future of the citizen, them and their kids, in debt for year to come while the politician is out of office. Now, like I say, I'm torn because I know we need jobs. I understand that. And I had to sit back and think about this thing to myself. I said, wait, wait a minute. <clears throat> if, <coughs> excuse me, if the, if the municipalities give out these subsidies to these companies. Say, for instance, okay, I'm going to give the company, I'll give you tax break. I front load tax break to you for the first 10 years. You ain't got to pay no taxes. Okay? Uh, on your utility bill, right? We'll, we'll pay uh, we'll pay 45% of your utility bill. If, if you come in here because this this cold weather climate or this hot weather climate, the air condition or the AC, what I'm got or the AC or the heat got to run. So we'll pay 75% of your utility bill. We'll give you tax free for 10 years. Right. And we'll give you all these other subsidies. But you got to hire, you know, how, 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 many, how many people can you hire? We're going to tell you how many people hire. How many people are you going to hire? The company say, well, we're going to hire 50 people. I mean, no, 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 no. No, the company say, we're going to hire 15,000 people. And the politicians say, what? 15,000 people? Man, let's get these folks this 10-year front-loaded tax-free for the first year. Let's pay 45% of their light bill for the first 10 years. Let's give them all these other little tax break and incentive for two years. Because we getting 15,000 jobs in here. Now, let me tell you what goes on the back door. The back door is these these uh, politicians who over these municipalities, they get paid from these corporations to push this stuff through, to put people out of their house on the street so they can build this big building. And the big building may go only have production in that big building if the company comes in like they say it is, 
because they can always get they got all these subsidies and these incentives and not build nothing, but still have that tax break because it's locked in. They ain't got to build a thing. That's the thing about it. It ain't no guarantee that they gonna build nothing, but they get all these incentives from your city or your little town or your state, and they don't have to guarantee to build nothing. But see, the politicians don't care because the one who made the deal and took people land, he got some money in his pocket. See, he, 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 he can get out of office next year and go on about his business because he got money in his pocket. He don't have to worry about five, ten years down the line because he already paid. But now they, they're giving all these incentives to these, these, corpor these corporations to do all this, uh, this I'm going to call it dream work manufacturing, right? Because it's a dream work manufacturing if there's no plant there or no plant ever get built. Now, I'm thinking to myself now, can't these incentives now, if, if, the, if the company don't build on the property, they are still on the hook for these tax incentives. So that means the people has to pay these tax incentives. The people have to, have, have, the people have to come up with the money. You see, in other words, the company offer the people, you, your wealth, your labor as collateral for a business coming in. Now that business coming in, it doesn't make any sense to me because say for instance, if, if you give, if you give a, if a municipality, somebody is giving a business 15 million, I mean, just say $15 million to come in to build a facility and incentives and taxes and all these breaks, right? It's so much they got to give it up front, front and everything else is kind of like back, middle and back loaded. But why can't these municipalities take that $15 Right, and invest in their own citizens instead of giving it to these corporations. If I got fifteen million dollars and 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 I'm a, and I'm a I'm a government official, if somebody in my little town or my little community, if they invent a product or something like that that we can get behind that's going to benefit the community, let's put the taxpayer money behind the taxpayer. But what what I'm saying is that these politicians they put the taxpayer money behind these corporations who don't need these incentives. Who only juking you out your money? That's what these Asian, that what these Asian manufacturers are doing. They juking these American politicians out their money because they know they're greedy. These Asians they get these Asians they got smart. These Asians are, are, are these Asians are tricking these American uh, businessmen and politicians faster than a road runner trip, uh, uh, tricking a coyote. They're tricking them. These Asians has learned the game. So like Tampa is in that thing. See, these American businessmen can go around the world and juke people out their money. But see, these agents have learned the game now because now they got all the wealth. Now we in a position where we want jobs. And see, here's, here's the crazy thing is, now here's the flip side. Now these communities who say they need jobs and they want jobs, at the same time, they don't want these manufacturing plants in. Because they don't want these manufacturing plants polluting their water, polluting their air. Where, where's the trade-off? You say you want jobs, right? And then when we give all these subsidies to bring jobs in, now you don't want jobs because you worried your taxes gonna go up, and you worried about you know uh, the, uh, these uh, these environmental causes of issue. Where's the happy medium here? See, that's why ain't nobody gonna build no factory here in America. It just costs too much money. It just costs too much headache. Let me tell you something. Overseas, when these bank, when these companies come in and they want to build something, let's say when you go to China, you want to build something in China, you want to build a big building. Man, shoot, two days later you have that land. <laughs> they go in and put the people out. Now I'm not saying that's right and that's fair. And I'm not saying I want to see that here. But that would happen in China. If a business want to build a manufacturing place somewhere, them Chinese go in there the same day and clean the people out. You want this land? Come back tomorrow as yours. <laughs> that's how they do it. I'm not saying that's right because it ain't right. But here in America, see this America, America, you got to, don't nobody want to deal with America because you got to deal with unions. Ain't no manufacturer coming back to America. Do y'all believe that? Ain't no manu American manufacturing is over. It's over. Nobody want to pay to, to deal with the unions. Nobody want to deal with the high cost of labor. Nobody want to deal with the, the, uh, the environmental and the, eco and the economic uh, restrictions and all the rules and regulations when, 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 they, when they can go to somewhere like Taiwan and just do all the polluting they want to and get all the free labor they want 
Ain't nobody going to deal with that over like over here. That's why in this country we got to think a little smaller. Don't give these uh, subsidies when you take these subsidies and you can develop something in this country. Technology-wise, you can develop in this country. Use your, use your state and local subsidies to benefit your, your citizens. Fix your infrastructure. That put people to work. Educate your kids in technology. Not being no dang on rapper or not being no doggone sweet sweeper. Educate your kids in technology. Over there in, in North Korea right now, right? In North Korea. You know, you know what they're teaching their kids? They're teaching their kids that internet. They teach their kids how to hack, how to code, how to program, cybersecurity. That's what they're teaching their kids over there <coughs> in China. <coughs> in China, they're teaching their kids technology. What are we teaching our kids here? Teaching our kids outdated history. What we teach our kids over here? We teach our kids some old, some old stuff that's outdated, outdated curricula that don't mean a hill of beans. But over there, they're teaching their kids in India, teaching their kids technology. That computer, that's the future. Innovation. If you give these subsidies out, you, you got these subsidies to have innovation in your community. Not give it out to these foreign manufacturers to come over here who get all these subsidies in America and don't build nothing. Nothing at all. But these politicians got their money. They kick the can down the road to the, to the next citizen or the next citizen to pay those subsidies. That they guaranteed a corporation to come in and they ain't going to do nothing. Like these football stadiums. Right? These cities pay football stadiums su subsidies to come in and build a football stadium. Ain't that crazy? Build your stadium here. We'll give you all these incentives. When they get these incentives subsidies, who pays for that? Who has to pay for that? The taxpayer. The few people that's working and they're on welfare. The 1%. The middle class. You know, y'all don't realize. We, we, I'm going to talk more about this when we get to uh, uh, redistribution of wealth. I'm going to jump hard on this. But on these subsidies that we get these businesses... The citizen pays for that. The working citizen, he's paid for that. His future is paying for that. His kids' future is paying. No, his president paying for that. His kids' future is paying for that. And their kids' future paying for that. Those subsidies. Now, look, now, I'm not saying that it's right because America has did this to other countries too. See, now the reverse has changed. See, that's what y'all got to realize when chicken come home roast. The roles are going to be changed one day. And now we're seeing a change. See, something we went into other countries and did as far as manufacturing, setting up, getting the cheap labor, all that kind of stuff, right? Now, they do it. They, 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 work, they work in that same ploy that, that, uh, that America did. But only, they're not coming over here to America to start no manufacturing, to build another bill, because like I say, it's too high. And it's too much political stuff. American people too high on the hog. George Bush, George Bush, I believe it was night 2000, I can't think it was, but I remember I was at work and I heard George Bush say he took America from a manufacturing, he said America is a consumer's economy, not a manufacturer, took us from a manufacturing-based economy to a consumer-based, y'all know what that means? That means they let all the manufacturing go overseas, but they can bring their products back over here for America to buy and consume. And everybody knows when the manufacturer names a tune, the consumer has to dance. We are consumers. They got us on this consuming so much that we want every little nook and cranny that comes out, every little product that comes out. But none of them little products that are coming out is being built over here. I'll be watching Shark Tank. And what the first thing them folks say, do you have a manufacturer over in China? Uh, I think, I think you can get the cost down by getting it built over in China. Some folks say, no, we want to make it, keep it in here, here in America. Well, uh, you're not going to get the cost down. You see what I'm saying? Everybody hooked on cheap money, cheap cost. Nobody don't care about the country. No, it's not about the country anymore. It's about get these little, these little widgets cheap. Get it manufactured over there. Now, I wouldn't have nothing, about, nothing against it. You can get 
get the manufacturing done over here. But you can't get the manufacturing over here because Americans, we didn't got too high on the hog. We got people on welfare don't even, don't even want to work, 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 work for $10 an hour because they can make more money on welfare. Where's our, who's our working class? If you look out on the highways, who, uh, who doing the construction? Mexicans. And our friends talk about kicking, building a wall to keep the Mexicans out. Well, who going to do all the labor? Who, who going to put the roof on the house? Huh? Who going to do that? I don't see the house. I don't, I don't see no black folks want to want to get out there and do the work that the Mexicans do. Now, well, I do see a lot of blacks out there with their own yard service. I see some whites out there too. Them the ones they probably got records. Thirdly, they can't they can't get no other kind of jobs, so they get out of jail and they start their long their lawn companies, and that's okay too. Ain't nothing wrong with that. At least you're doing something some positive. Staying out, staying out that can. But who but who gonna do the work? Who gonna do the work for low cost? Who you gonna get to do the work for low cost? And a lot and, and and when these companies do get these subsidies and build some, who they hire to do work in there? Huh? They they gonna hire people that don't they can get low wages to. That's what they gonna hire people they can get low wages to. They never hire you because you don't want to work for no low wages. You think you get more more welfare? You out on the hog now. So I'm torn, but I, I look at these government subsidies and I say to myself, I think we can do a little better to give it all this money. Now, if these now, if these manufacturing companies want to come in and come into these communities and you give them all these government subsidies, it should be a guarantee that they will build what they say they're gonna build. They're gonna hide the amount of folks that they're gonna hide. A lot of times they tell these the municipalities, they're going to hire 15,000 people and they only hire only maybe 50 people because they bring the robots in. But see, everybody like, like numbers. Everybody's eyes light up when they see numbers, especially big numbers. Right? And, and that's, what they, that's what I call the illusion. And then, then, they sort of, then they put a switch on the municipality and say, well, you know, we were going we did tell you we were going to hire 1,500 people, but uh, you know, we're going we gonna, to we gonna do 500. Because we are because the whole thing of it is, since we've been over in America, we want to try to get the price down. So if we bring more automation in, we can get the price down. We get the price down on the product, we can sell more of the product, and we can sell the product longer. And in the long run, the plan will be open longer. But we have fifty hundred people, like we say, right? Our 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 labor cost is going to be high. You see, that's what's happening. Now I'm telling y'all what's what's happening now here too. Well, we, we, we'll talk about it another day. So I kind of like torn between these subsidies, but I just think that if you're going to give these corporations subsidies, then you should be able to build up the uh, to build up your city, your community infrastructure with those same incentives behind people to do stuff. And you can put people to work. These governments can put people to work. I'm not talking about in a, so, in a, in a, in a socialist sense. There's companies out there that, 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 that they can contract, they can do things. That, that can imp just improving the infrastructure alone in some of these cities is going to be <clears throat> that's probably 10, 20 year, 10, 15 year project. Take down some of these old raggedy buildings and homes, flatten that land out, make things look pretty where business want to come in and build something on that property without all these government subsidies, handouts, kicking a can down the road to your future kids. Clean your city up, clean some of this old, spend that money to knock some of this old infrastructure down and to rebuild something. I put people to work. Clean the street, fix the bridges, fix the park. You know, put money into technology, invest in these kids. This should be a computer lab in every neighborhood where these kids go learn computer coding and programming like these other foreign kids. Our kids don't know nothing about how to work a dog on computer. These other kids know 10 years old can, can do coding and programming. And American kids can't do nothing but go on Facebook. But I got off on something. I'm talking about government subsidies. <laughs> but look, I got to get out of here, though. I got to get out of here. I know this was a crazy show. But I do, it, it just was just was remarkable to me listening to this and studying how these subsidies work about all this money that we give these companies to come in. And a lot of these companies, no guarantee that they're going to come in after this contract is signed. And all the subsidies is guaranteed to them. But there's no guarantee that they're going to hire what they say they're going to hire, or they're going to even build a facility. Now, they may come in and build a dummy facility, a building, but don't staff it. 
right? So they so they so so they do half of the plan, but not all the plan. But yet they still have these future subsidies guaranteed and guaranteed to be paid by the citizens. See what I'm saying? It's a crazy thing. But y'all do y'all own little homework and check that out. But look here. When y'all get a chance, y'all check out that Ashton Maduro. This is a really good stick. They can say always support your local cigar spot first, like I always tell y'all. Then if you can't find it that, then go online, fill the humidor, the, the uh, JR cigars, the CI, something like that. You, but real good thing there. Man, I tell you, my mind's all over the place to here. I just just get frustrated when I look when I when I when I think about this and all the money, you know how these politicians these pattern politicians is just selling the American people down the road. But then at the same time, I think about the American people. Do we do we really want to work? Do we really want to manufacture? You know, we and instead, you know, we want to keep our yards clean. We want to keep our, you know, our um, our gardens green. We want to keep our air fresh, and which ain't nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, you can't have both. You can't have jobs and a clean environment. I'm just sorry, you just can't have both. You sacrificed, and if you got a clean environment, you ain't got no income coming in. But, but you still want to consume products. I don't know. It's a crazy thing to me. But I just want to present that to y'all. Get you to listen to that thing again. again. It's very insightful on how this thing here works. Economic development. Government subsidy. Who does it benefit? Who do I think it benefit? <laughs> All right, look at that. I'm going to get on out of here now. So like, thank y'all for stopping by again and having a cigar with Uncle Maduro. Now, like I tell y'all all the time when y'all leave me, y'all take care of everybody out there. But more importantly, y'all take care of y'all self first. All right now.